The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Our nation's capital. This is Bloomberg Sound On. I'm a little bit unimpressed of the discipline and the training level of the Russian forces. As bad and as horrific as this is, we want to make sure that we do not see an escalation. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. My sense is that commodity prices will remain very high, elevated, certainly over the next few months, probably the first half of the year. Do Republicans want to give Democrats a victory on getting tough with China? On a political basis, the answer is no. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Russia's war in Ukraine enters day 12 as members of Congress reach an agreement to ban Russian oil. But the White House is not there yet. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics as we zero in on energy as a commodity and as a weapon. Joined momentarily by Patrick DeHaan, the head of oil analysis at Gas Buddy. And we'll talk with Bloomberg's Kriti Guptos at this Zero Week Energy Conference right now happening in Houston as we seek to answer how much of a disruption could be coming, how high prices could go. And of course, what will be the political liability? Later, my conversation with Michael Kimmage, Cold War specialist, history professor at Catholic University, formerly a Russia and Ukraine policy planner at the State Department. The signature panel's in place. Everyone's back from the weekend. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis are here for the hour. Had to check to make sure these weren't typos. $119 a barrel, and that was far from the high we saw today. But the big headline, politically, no announcements on banning Russian oil. And that's after a secure teleconference held this morning between President Biden and the leaders of France, Britain and Germany, who are clearly not on board with this idea yet. Here's White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. Well, no decision has been made at this point uh, by the president about uh, an, uh, a ban an import, a ban on importing uh, oil from Russia. Uh, and those discussions are ongoing internally and also with our counterparts uh, and uh, partners uh, in Europe and around the world. I would note that what the president is most focused on is ensuring we are continuing to take steps uh, to deliver punishing economic consequences on Putin while taking all action necessary to limit the impact to prices at the gas pump. Yeah, at least they're being straightforward, trying to keep your gas prices from going higher than they are now. But wow, already at a new national average high price, according to Gas Buddy. We'll get there in a minute. As we learned from Capitol Hill, lawmakers agree on something. They, too, do not like Russian oil. Outlining legislation would ban imports of oil from Russia and empower the president to boost tariffs as well on some other things. That doesn't mean it's going to happen, though. Jen Psaki making clear, again, after this meeting with our European allies, that it's just another matter for them. It's one thing for the U.S. to ban Russian oil. That, well, that might happen. It's a very different thing for Europe to do the same. Here's Saki again. 
The amount that the United States in, was importing back in 2021, before the invasion, was about 700,000 barrels per day of crude oil and petroleum. The Europeans import about 4.5 million barrels per day uh, of oil. So obviously, we're also very well aware, as we're having these conversations and as we're consulting with our partners, that there would be, uh, we have different capacities and capabilities. Yeah. So it's two different worlds here. Getting everyone on the same page might not be possible, especially as I now also read on the terminal. Russian top energy official threatens Nord Stream 1 pipeline. Yeah, this is, they've got some threatening to do as well. Russia's deputy prime minister threatening to cut off Russian natural gas supplies to Europe through the original Nord Stream 1 pipeline. So this could still go in a lot of directions. And we're joined right now by Patrick DeHaan, head of petroleum analysis at GasBuddy, which is out with a new all-time, all-time high today. Patrick, welcome. It's great to have you. Why don't we start by ripping off the Band-Aid? What are we paying here nationally? Well, as you mentioned, we are now at an all-time record high, 4.11 a gallon, eclipsing that previous high watermark in 2008, which was 4.10. In addition, to kind of give context to the pace of increases, We've also set the record for largest weekly increase uh, for the U.S. as well. We're up 50 cents a gallon from just a week ago. That surpasses the weekly increase we saw after Hurricane Katrina when prices rose 49 cents. So wow. not only are we at the highest level ever, but we've gotten there very quickly. When you look around the country, California is still the tough spot, and gas stations in the cities still paying the most. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we continue to see more stations in California get to that six and seven dollar mark. Um, you know, by and large, the average is quite a bit under that. Uh, L.A. at this moment, as an example, the average in Los Angeles now five forty three a gallon, with stations uh, probably about a half a dozen to a dozen that are over six dollars a gallon. Impressive, uh, in the wrong way, of course, Patrick. We're talking about eliminating Russian oil, as you well know from the equation here, which. Uh, is, depending on who you ask, somewhere around, I think, 8% with all petroleum products included in terms of our imports from 2021. What would that mean for prices? And are, are we seeing prices rise in anticipation of that? Is it already baked in? Well, I, I, I think not, given the fact that Germans this morning kind of made it clear that they have no intention yet of sanctioning Russia's energy. Yeah. I think that's still something that is scaring the market. It's a potential um, obviously, your comments about Nord Stream 1, that this could continue to escalate. I mean, that would be a dramatic escalation to cut supplies and would certainly further isolate Russia. The question is, you know, could the EU retaliate or would they respond by curbing the flow of oil? I mean, the U.S. is, is looking at options in Iran with a new nuclear deal and even a, a sending a team down to Venezuela just you know, you could not have seen this coming. Just a dramatic turn of events. The U.S. now talking to Venezuela. Right. And we, we um, cut off diplomatic ties oil. with that nation three years yeah. ago. They were the Russia at that point in the oil patch. Mm -hmm. Now we're going, hey, look, it's either that or we're going to Saudi Arabia to talk to the guy who dismembered an American journalist uh, for saying yeah. the wrong things. Or we can wait for Iranian oil. Patrick, which is the worst? <laughs> well, you don't you have know, to answer that uh, question. Yeah, no, I, I, I think there's inherent risks with, you know, especially bringing Iran back. Uh, there's a lot of negotiations there. I'm kind of surprised the deal hasn't been done. It's been imminent for weeks, but mm 
Um, you, you have to wonder, Iran may be overplaying their position, uh, hoping to get a desperate U.S. I mean, the administration has openly said that it wants to bring down the price of oil, but it's not, you know, it's, there's not a whole lot of levers that the president has to do that. And well, he's taking right. the few that he has. Um, but for now, we're stuck here and we'll continue to see gas prices go up across the U.S. in the week ahead. But don't we need to have a, a, a more honest conversation about that, Patrick? You hear people talking about releasing oil from the SPR, you know, the president's doing what he's making phone calls. The fact of the matter is there's nothing Congress or the president really can do in the immediate term. If we start drilling for oil again uh, in, 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 in expanding shale or whatever it is we're going to do in this country to, to try to find more of our oil, it will take a lot longer uh, than than this conflict may last, or certainly the summer driving season. That's right. The U.S. has none of its own turnkey options, and that's why we're turning to areas like Saudi Arabia, and why we're sending a team down to Venezuela, and why we're talking to Iran, because we have no way out of this. We sanction their energy, and you know it's it's, it's going to be tough. The, the The question is. Do you sanction Russian energy? Does the EU go along with it to exert maximum pressure on Putin? And right. potentially could that crack Russia faster, which would ultimately bring relief sooner? Or do you continue funding the Russians through buying oil, have oil prices reach records, and maybe not exert full or maximum pressure? I mean, it's already bad. Yes. You know, the, the question is just make it worse, and will that help it get better? A couple quick things. When the White House says that this will line the pockets of Vladimir Putin, that was the line last week when it was off the table banning Russian oil because it would in general raise global prices. Are they correct? Absolutely. OK, so that's good. Let's get this out there. Uh, now, when we consider turning off the spigot, you told me it's 411 right now. That's an average. Could we yeah. see another jump like that over the course of the next week if this actually if this happens, you know, say ordered by the White House in the next few days? If the White House issues sanctions on Russia's energy, mm-hmm. we probably will have the catalyst to see a national average eclipse five dollars a gallon. And then there are questions about what that means for the broader economy, but it also makes me want to ask you about demand destruction. If it's true that the the, the best cure for high prices is high prices. Uh, Patrick, what does $5 do to our consumption? I think we're in a predicament there as well, because $5 might not necessarily lead to the the choke off in consumption that that some may uh, believe. Really? I mean, look at at on top of the, yeah, the inflation numbers, um, you know, CPI is up 11, what, 11%, I think, last month from BLS. And consumer retail uh, purchasing was still up 4%. You know, this is maybe the best summer yet in this in this COVID era. Last summer was an improvement, but this summer, you know, cases cases skyrocketed. Now they plummeted. Things are broadly reopened. Just about everything. Mask mandates are loosening, even in some of the most progressive areas. Yep. Americans are feeling good. I went over the weekend out in the city of Chicago. I've never seen it busier in this COVID era. Hmm. I don't know that Americans are going to be held back by four dollar gas. Right. There's something called revenge travel are. this summer. That's right. Uh, it's just a fact. Listen, here's another a question for you to make the distinction, Patrick DeHaan, who's joining us from Gas Buddy. Let's say they do shut off Nord Stream 1. Let's say that's the way Russia gets back to Europe. Is there a relationship, or I guess what is the relationship, uh, between an event like that and the price of crude and gasoline? We're talking about different elements at this point. If you shut off a natural gas pipeline to Europe, what does it mean for gasoline and crude oil in the United States? 
That's just another escalation. It means that, you know, looking more at, at us, it means our natural gas prices are going to surge. Mm-hmm. It's going to mean that more American natural gas heads over to Europe to fill the void. And it means that our natural gas prices could reach records, probably would. And it means that some people then next winter are going to see energy bills that, you know, are, are mind-boggling. You know, triple what they were this year, potentially. Quadruple is not out of the question. Um, and, and that's the reason why the U.S. and Europe are thinking very, very hard about this. And they haven't rushed to make a decision because there are significant repercussions and then you talk about the impact of, of, you know, if Nord Stream 1 shuts down, what it yeah. would do to gasoline and, and oil. Well, um, again, it, it, you know, it, it, it would help the oil industry here start to increase output. We need to, you know, we need to cut all the red tape we can for the, the, energy, and, uh, the energy security of the U.S. temporarily. I think we, we, we all agree that, you know, down the road we envision transitioning. To, to EVs where it makes sense. But for now, we're beholden to oil, and we need to have a plan to increase our energy security before we ultimately start that transition. Patrick DeHaan, the head of petroleum analysis at Gas Buddy, with a new all-time high national average today and fascinating analysis. Patrick, thank you for bringing us into the market. We're going to stay right here and bring in another smart voice, one I trust, one you trust, and that's Kriti Gupta, Bloomberg Markets correspondent, because Creedy today is in Houston at the big Zero Week Energy Conference uh, talking to the people who actually run this market. Creedy, it's great to have you. Thank you for being here. I want to listen quickly to Toby Rice, someone that Creedy spoke with today. He's the president and CEO of the biggest natural gas producer in the United States, EQT, at Zero Week in Houston. Listen to his take on this. It's Toby Rice. Real simple, like I said, pipeline infrastructure and LNG export facilities. Um, you know, we need to build those pipelines faster and LNG facilities faster than we've ever, ever done in the past. Um, that's, that's one thing. The other thing, though, is we need his voice. We need a very simple, send a political signal that natural gas is the energy of the future. The United States has the ability um, and desire to help meet world demand for clean-burning natural gas. Asked by Kriti Gupta what it is you need. And it wasn't permission, Kriti, it was pipeline. You're talking to people down there who are at the middle of this uh, conversation who are being impacted directly by this idea. Is there a fear in Houston or, or is it good for business to see Russian oil banned in the U.S.? It's great for business, and all these companies want, whether it's an oil company, whether it's a natural gas company, all they want is the ability to take advantage of it, essentially a really historic moment for the United States to become an even bigger energy exporter, specifically to Europe, which is really looking to decline or looking to pull out of its dependence from Russian gas. Here's the problem, though. You are really seeing this kind of palpable tension between government officials, whether it's OPEC, Secretary General uh, Mohamed Barkindo, or whether it's um, the Biden administration's voice, versus some of these major players in the energy sector, because as you heard, the infrastructure just isn't there at the moment. For oil companies, they're waiting for that call from President Biden 
who instead is turning at the moment to other members of the world who produce oil. One of the big questions is why is there that disconnect when going back into history, the energy sector and the government have mostly been on the same page. So it's really interesting to witness that tension in real time. That is fascinating. And I'm glad you mentioned it, Creedy. Toby Rice, when you asked him, said he had not heard from the administration, right? No one had reached out yet. He did. He confirmed that. But he did say he had reached out. He had reached Mm -hmm. out to Secretary Granholm. He had reached out to John Kerry. He had reached out uh, to the state of New York, which right now um, isn't too hot on building their own pipeline infrastructure. He has made these calls. But one of the questions is, are they listening? And on the flip side of it, let me argue the other side. The question is, this is an energy sector, natural gas or oil, or the other sources of energy that the United States has, that has constantly believed in free markets over and over again. So what are they waiting for? If they want to Hmm. kind of amp up production, do they need the White House's permission? So those are the two sides of the argument. That's a fair question. Although I guess, look, when you've been burned, maybe you do want to be told next time that somebody is going to buy your stuff. Um, in, In this particular case, though, is it fair to compare that with what we're doing in, in terms of engaging uh, oil producers around the world, going to the Qataris, for instance? Isn't that different than asking someone to start drilling from scratch? How long would it take a, a firm like EQT to start pulling more gas out of the ground? Well, for EQT, it's less of an issue of pulling the gas out of the ground. It's more of an issue of transporting it. That's where the pipeline infrastructure comes. It's an even bigger issue when it's talking about exporting it, because those are other steps involved. For oil companies, though, and we're going to get more sound on this tomorrow, but for oil companies right now, the concern here is, do you start to get punished for drilling more, but then on the other side, come to the rescue of the American people and other oil-consuming nations? At a time, by the way, let me give you a statistic here. OPEC's market share of the global market has dropped 7% hmm. since 2010. They made 40% of the global oil share. Now they are 33.2%. So this, once again, is really an opportunity for the United States. But just given kind of the pushback that they, they've had in terms of the energy transition, the climate yeah. changes, there's real hesitance to drill, drill, drill after, like you said, the consequences that followed the last time they did that. Just fascinating. Critty, is it like a party down there? Is this the, the conference they've been waiting to have the last 10 years? The last two years. This is the first conference <laughs> for the energy space since the COVID-19 lockdown, essentially. So there's a lot of discussions, a lot of deal making. There's a lot of um, just kind of collaboration. It's not just from inside the United States. You have members of really every country here uh, trying to figure out what the best way is to move forward. Great reporting. Uh, Kriti Gupta is there all week. Bloomberg Markets correspondent. And uh, where Kriti goes, we follow. Thank you, Kriti, for, for that great update. Great interviews, too. If you didn't see them on Bloomberg TV or hear them on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. It's like every day is special coverage. That's how seriously we take this coverage at Bloomberg with conversations you will not hear anywhere else. And big thanks to Patrick DeHaan and Kriti Gupta for 
some great reporting, smart analysis here as we assemble the panel for more where that came from. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. Great to have both of you here as we come off the weekend with essentially the same scenario we had uh, Jeannie, when we went into the weekend, and that is a thought that we might want to ban U.S. Russian oil. I know Congress seemed to get its act together today, which is funny that they need to agree to agree or something like that. But the White House is still not on board. How long does Joe Biden have to figure this out? You know, I think Joe Biden has a, not a lot of time, but he the White House is making an important point that everybody needs to acknowledge, which is that the allies have got to stay together on this. And we've already heard German Chancellor Schultz say today that he does not want to move in this direction, or at least mm-hmm. not yet. And so that is critically important. One of the things the White House has committed to is to showing Russia that they can't break the alliance. That is critical. And so... So Congress needs to give the White House room to bring the allies along on this, if possible, before we end up moving unilaterally, because that could, you know, potentially put us in all in even more danger. That's a tough line, Rick. Does that look like you're breaking up the alliance or that the U.S. is is leading if we did it on our own and ban Russian oil? You know, look, practically speaking, <clears throat> it's a lot harder for them than it is for us, as uh, Creedy pointed sure. out. And uh, and so, look, I think it's OK to go in lockstep. And so far, you know, we've been totally aligned with our allies and the Biden administration has made it a commitment that they don't make any decisions related to Europe that Europe isn't involved in. That being said, um, uh, we, we have the opportunity to do a carve out here that does not dramatically affect them. Uh, mm-hmm. It's obviously prices are going up almost regardless of what we do. Uh, that's obviously been demonstrated. And so I think in this one, uh, they got to give us a one off on this. And I think that's probably the decision that the Biden administration has made is, you know, we know we're going to wind up having to do it sooner or later. We can't veto a bill from Congress on this. And so let's just make sure that the allies are uh, aligned on this and understand that we have our own political realities at home that need to be attended to. And there's no way this administration can survive long term buying Russian oil. Boy, yeah. Well, how much time does he have then, Rick? I'll ask you the same thing I did, Jeannie. Well, you know, right now, the Congress is debating whether or not to include the Russian oil imports yes, ban right. uh, in the uh, omnibus that's the end of the week. So, so they have no more time. Friday. <laughs> well, it gives you Friday to do something. Yeah, exactly. That, uh, by the way, Jeannie, is, is part of the Ukraine story, even if this doesn't go in there, with $10 billion in aid. I'm surprised that number hasn't gone up with what we've seen, not in terms uh, only of destruction, but now it's a one and a half million, I believe, refugees who have crossed the border. This is not about to get cheaper. They need to pass this money, no? They need to pass this money and they need to increase it. To your point, $10 billion is not going to do it. I think we're going to see a push to increase that going forward. $10 billion is a start, but it is probably a third or even less of what ultimately we will yes. need to do. So we'll be coming back around on these. I'll ask you both uh, the same thing here as we heard from uh, Patrick DeHaan. $5 a gallon gas on average. Can Joe Biden survive that? in a midterm election year, Jeannie? It's very tough. If he's going to survive it, he's going to have to explain why we're in this situation. The one-two punch of COVID, the supply chain and all of that, coupled with what's happened with Russia and Ukraine, he's going to have to get out and communicate this to the American public. Republicans are already hitting Democrats hard on this in terms of the midterm. So they're going to have to get ahead on the communication of that. Does $5 a gallon wipe out Democrats in the midterms, Rick? 
I think Democrats are headed for a wipeout anyway, and five dollar gas doesn't doesn't keep that from happening. Unbelievable that we're talking numbers like this with Rick and Jeannie. They're here for the hour. Up next, we'll check traffic and markets for you and bring in Michael Kimmage from Catholic University. More on the war in Ukraine. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1 to New York, Bloomberg 1130 to Boston, Bloomberg 1061 to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960 to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119 and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew. Headline on the terminal, Russia surges past Iran to become world's most sanctioned nation. An incredible turn in world order. At least Vladimir Putin can tell himself that. Coming up, we'll talk about what may be motivating Putin and what history may tell us about the coming days in Ukraine. What comes next with Professor Michael Kimmage, who chairs the history department at Catholic University former State Department policy planner for Russia and Ukraine. A lot of people point back to 2014, Crimea, for clues into what Vladimir Putin may be up to next or in general here in Ukraine as we try to understand his motivations. And it was in that very year that Michael Kimmage started running the Russia-Ukraine portfolio as part of the Secretary of State's policy planning staff at the State Department. He is now chair of the History Department at Catholic University. Professor Michael Kimmage, thanks for being with us. Do we not go back even further to the way things were handled in the war in Chechnya when Vladimir Putin uh, was a younger man in a different position here? The Battle of Grozny is something that people have been looking at as to what might be next for Kiev. Is that something we need to fear? It's certainly something we need to fear. There are tactical similarities that um, there was a lot of overconfidence when it came to the initial attack on, 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 on Grozny, and then, you know, that failed, and, and, and very brutal methods were were employed. Of course, Chechnya is a part of political Russia, so it's a crisis or a disturbance within Russia. This is a cross-border conflict, so it's yes much bigger scale what we're looking at in Ukraine. His willingness, though, to flatten a city is something that I have wondered about as we look at this convoy coming down from the north and just wondering, how far are you prepared to go? Are you prepared to flatten the historic cathedrals of Kiev? And if you look back, Professor, I guess the reason why I ask is, so far he has said yes to that. I suppose. I mean, you have the example of Grozny, you have the example of Aleppo in Syria, which uh, Russia with the Syrian army uh, devastated. I do think that the war plan in Ukraine for Russia was to avoid the cities, was to spare the cities and to decapitate the government. Now they're left with a very unsavory situation where they want to achieve their objectives and they can only do so by assaulting the cities. And it's not just the cathedrals there. It's lots of Russian families that have relatives in places like Kiev, so it's Mm -hmm. potentially very damaging for Putin. What's your thought on the next couple of days then? We hear there will be heavier bombardment that he has, in fact, adjusted. He's learned from what's happened, learned from the resistance, and will take to the take to the air and, and start sending, as we've already seen, even cruise missiles over the weekend into residential areas. Is this, from what you know of Vladimir Putin, what we're in for? Well, I think that he's capable of, of anything in this war, and he's going he's gonna to play for keeps. So I would expect the worst. Uh, and there will be an assault on the cities in the coming days and weeks, and there will also be an assault on critical infrastructure, energy supplies, gas, uh, all of that. So it's an all-out 
uh, brutal assault on the Ukrainian people. What is motivating him is the is the story that we tend to hear in, in, in I hate to say Western media, but we'll say mainstream media in the United States about him trying to rebuild, at least in his head, uh, the, the outskirts of the Soviet empire. Is it as simple as that? I don't think that to me that's a very helpful way of framing it. I think he has two kinds of ambitions in Ukraine. <clears throat> the first is that he wants to block certain outcomes. He wants to prevent Ukraine from joining NATO. He wants to yeah. eliminate the military relationship between Ukraine and the United States, between Ukraine and Europe. And, you know, that he can accomplish by, in effect, destroying the country. The other ambition that he has is much bigger, and that's to create a political order to his liking there. So that would be a partition of the government or a puppet leader who would be deferential to Moscow or subservient to Moscow. That I think he wants to do. I think that he's going to prove unable to do over time, but he, he may well try. I mentioned before uh, you jumped on, Russia, according to a, a Bloomberg story that uh, hit the terminal a while ago, has vaulted past Iran and North Korea to become the world's most sanctioned nation in the span of 10 days uh, following this invasion. I guess the question I have for you, and, and it's a difficult one I'm sure to answer, is does he care? It, it, this is a country that's been living under sanctions for some time. Does more actually make it worse? Was he expecting this? I think he cares. I think that uh, he expected the war to be short. He expected it to be something of a cakewalk. Uh, and I think he expected that he would be sanctioned, but not to this degree uh, and on this level. So it's it's going to be a huge blow to the Russian middle class, to the Russian business world, uh, to oligarchs and others uh, around Putin. And that, you know, that that's meaningful. It's not trivial at all. But what's a bit different from 2014 is that uh, Putin has China to work with. Uh, and so he's going to be trying everything to have, you know, China serve as a pressure valve, as a release valve uh, for these Western sanctions. And I don't think anybody quite knows how that's all going to play out. He thinks he's on the right side of history, right? I think he does. I think he's making a bet against us. He's making a bet against the West. And he feels confident that we're politically divided. We're a bit of a paper tiger. We're not really going to stick up for Ukraine and that the Europeans are going to ultimately pursue their economic interests and reconcile with Russia and that he's got other partners uh, to work with. But I have to say, you know, trying to be very sober-minded here, I think he's vastly overestimating both his own abilities uh, and Russia's capacities in all of this. You mentioned uh, China, Professor. How concerned are you about the language that we're hearing uh, from Beijing, its rock-solid ties with Russia, uh, that, that its security, Moscow's security concerns, must be acknowledged, should not be at the whim of a single country, uh, this is uh, potentially very dangerous talk. It is. I mean, it's certainly a substantial issue that, that Russia can claim to be China's partner and vice versa. And, you know, China has supported Russia on a bunch of issues, such as being opposed to NATO expansion. On the other hand, China is nowhere near the battlefield and will never get close. Uh, China abstained at the United Nations when it came to a vote uh, on Ukraine, so it didn't join right. uh, with Russia. And China, I think, looks upon this degree of disruption uh, with displeasure, it's its too chaotic for them. Will China uh, buy the China, Russian gas that we end up banning? Oh, they would happily buy the Russian gas, for sure. Prove the sanctions on Russia. If they're going to prove difficult for China, China will do what's good for China. They're not going to they're not going to sacrifice for Russia. So it's a partnership of sorts, but I think it's thinner and more superficial than it seems. Professor Michael Kimmage from Catholic University, thank you so much, Professor, for being with us formally with the State Department and a very concerning outlook here on what's going on. We'll reassemble the panel next. 
and see if we can't find the convoy. Is it still driving in circles? This is Sound On, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. We spent much of this hour talking about our own fortunes here, what we pay for gas or oil, the political risks they bring. But are we doing enough for Ukraine? We know that a no-fly zone is off the table. How about sending fighter jets, as we've heard, or other hardware that President Zelensky's begging for? How about money? We reassemble the panel now with Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. Rick, reports say we're talking with Poland now to get some some MiG-29 fighter jets. These are Russian fighter jets, kind of like they're equivalent to, to, a, to an F-15 or an F-18. Send them to Ukraine. They know how to fly those. And then we'd replace those with American jets, which I guess is an upgrade for Poland. Who wants MiG-29s at this point, right? Is that is that something that is realistic or is that an act of war in the eyes of Vladimir Putin? Well, look, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious that we can't fly NATO aircraft into the country without looking like we're starting World War III. And yeah. so this is a one-off transaction. Fighter huh. pilots would be Ukrainian. The planes would be given to the Ukraine uh, government. So they would be legally owned by the Ukrainians, just like mm-hmm. any other weapon system that's currently being used mm-hmm. uh, by the Ukrainians. They they all are being shipped in now. So uh, what's the difference? Uh, the difference would be, I think, where do those planes go to land, refuel and restock, you know, on weapons? Uh, okay. If they are flying in and out of Poland or one of the other uh, NATO bloc countries, uh, I, I can see an escalation on the part Whoa. of Russia uh, by claiming NATO is now involved. One of those gets shot down, Jeannie, and that's the reason why they don't want a no-fly zone. Yeah, is Jeannie with us? There we go. Yep, <laughs> that's right. And we're looking at polls showing, you know, seven out of 10, almost eight out of 10 Americans want the United States to do more, including a no-fly zone, which, as you said, is off the table. Yeah. And yet the reality of this is, as you know, Brick was just saying, each of these actions can potentially spark a reaction, which can get us into a war. And so the president and the NATO allies have to be very, very careful on how they move forward, because the provocations that we could undertake in an attempt to help Ukraine are very real. And, uh, you know, as much as people are responding to what we're seeing, and, and it's devastating to look at, we have to be very careful from a policy perspective. Rick, will this uh, this $10 billion be cleared without any issue? It's been suggested that's the money of to in Ukraine aid the, the Biden administration has requested to come with this budget this week. Uh, the idea is that, you know, you get a whole bunch of COVID money while you're at it, force Republicans who may not love that idea to support funding Ukraine. Does it actually work out that way? Yeah, in the House, it's going to sail through. You'll have 300 members of Congress who want to pass that to include the Ukraine money. In the Senate, mm-hmm. you can run afoul of some Republican senators who think this $22.5 billion of COVID money is too much. Yeah. And they want all kinds of accounting for the monies we've already spent and things like that. So it could get tripped up and stripped out. Uh, but the but the Ukraine money is sacrosanct. You, you won't see that. Uh, go down or get pulled out. It it may even go up in the process. But right now, that $10 billion is going to move through fast. 
needs to happen by Friday uh, at midnight, Jeannie. That's when the government would run out of money. Is there time for debate or this just gets passed? Uh, you know, I don't I don't see much time on Wednesday. You have Democrats in the House leading leaving further retreat. Um, yeah. You know, there is not a lot of time to do this. You know, definitely the Ukraine money has got to be moved forward. They have got to do something on that. But it is very hard for me to see how they get this all done. If they're looking at, say, a Wednesday time frame for the House and then moving th- to the Senate, it's going to mm-hmm. be close. All right. Rick and Jeannie with us. Of course, this is the Monday edition of Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. It's nice to be back in the nation's capital. It was always, you know, it's always exciting to be at world headquarters, the mothership in New York. You make a lot of friends. Great people work at Bloomberg. But now that I'm back, you know, I'm back reporting, of course, on Washington. And little did I know I would do some firsthand reporting the minute I got back in town and I'm driving around the Beltway. You know, I was out running some errands, to be honest with you. I'd been gone for a week, and I actually saw it firsthand. I had heard talk of it, but I actually saw the convoy on the Beltway. People's Convoy, with apologies to C.W. McCall. <laughs> For people who are too young uh, to know this uh, novelty tune, by the way, this was a number one hit for weeks. <laughs> convoy, People's Convoy. It's even on the, the terminal. Trucker Convoy returns to Washington Beltway in COVID protest. Here it is in the Washington Post. People's Convoy, it says, begins circling Beltway for second day of pandemic-related demonstrations. I guess I'm having a little bit of a hard time with it because I saw it. I didn't know what it was at first. It just looked like the Beltway. There's a bunch of trucks that are usually on the Beltway. Now they're organized to be on the Beltway. Different part here, though. I saw a bunch of fire Fauci signs, a couple big Trump flags waving, and more police than I have seen ever on the Beltway. Although I will say as well, Cops on every overpass over the Beltway. Rick and Jeannie, uh, the People's Convoy is protesting a federal vaccine mandate that does not exist. Can they call this a win, Jeannie? Joe, Bethy, first I have to ask you, did you ever use a CB or have a CB handle? No, but I wanted, I had such CB envy. (laughs) Those guys driving around my town with the big antenna on the back of the car. Now is their moment. Now is. My grandpa had one. I was able to use one as a child. (laughs) So you brought back some good memories. You know, I I think, you know, the the police in Virginia and and around the D.C. area learned from what happened in Canada. You know, I think it's a little perplexing. A student asked me the other day, well, aren't we moving away from COVID? Things are getting better. Restrictions being lifted. So, you know, I think it's a little perplexing for people who are seeing this now. I have a sense they almost missed their moment on this, but we'll see. I guess the thing is here, Rick, I'm fooling around, but then I read the subhead. Organizer acknowledges there's a passionate faction of the convoy that wants to head into the nation's capital. They want to drive into town and shut the thing down. Am I, are we taking this seriously or not? 
I think the longer they can stay on the Beltway, the better off they'll be. <laughs> uh, I can't even imagine what downtown Washington will look like with more trucks and cars. Gee, I, I, you mean there's traffic in Washington? Uh, honestly, I really begin to wonder the science around this protest. And I'm a big fan of protests, as you know. But when I, know. I, when I calculated this new price of gas with 150 gallons in a tank, you know, it's costing them $700 a tank just to right. protest. That's a lot to ask. You know, you could say that a different way, Rick, that this is a convoy protesting a federal mandate that doesn't exist and in the process sending gas prices higher. They're driving all day. I'd call that a Beltway bandit. (laughs) Jeannie, this is, uh, I, I guess the issue here is that someone like me comes on the radio or whatever and laughs about this. Uh, what is there to take seriously here? What are we missing that these people are calling for? Well, you know, the the reality is you have many people across the country and across the world, quite frankly, who believe in liberty and they believe that they have a freedom to do with mm-hmm. their bodies and, and their jobs, et cetera, what they want to do. And they don't want the government monkeying around in that. So, you know, that is a serious conversation to be had. Is this I, thing a security threat? Are you worried about them coming into the district? Uh, you know, I, I think that the cops and the federal authorities in D.C. have this under control so far. I think, again, they did learn a lesson from what happened in Canada. I don't see this as a threat. In fact, I have some people who have seen it who have said it was more like a traveling circus almost. They had, you know, T-shirts and, you know, all (laughs) kinds of things. So there's a commerce going on there. So God bless them. That's right. There's a festive atmosphere. I am told, by the way, because I was in motion, so I I didn't see the whole thing, obviously. I'm told it took 25 minutes for the convoy to pass if you were sitting in one place. Uh, with a bunch of brakes in between, about 130 large trucks. But then there's like all these minivans and pickup trucks in there, too. It's a little bit difficult to tell. But it also made me think back, you know, to the small town I grew up in. And I thought, gosh, why don't we just call it a parade? It seems so harmless, Rick. It's a it's a the people's parade. The people's hubcap parade. (laughs) I mean, you know, I I agree. Look, I'm all for people driving around the Beltway. Uh, It happens every day, those parades. (laughs) And uh, I wish these guys luck because they've already accomplished what they want. Maybe it's a victory lap is what they're doing. That's right. That's the spirit. Another turn around the Beltway. March is Women's History Month every day this month, celebrating significant moments with Renita Young. Here's Renita. On this day in women's history in 2010, Catherine Bigelow becomes the first woman to win an Academy Award for Best Director. It was for The Hurt Locker. Bigelow studied painting at the San Francisco Art Institute. In the early 1970s, she moved to New York City to participate in the Whitney Museum's independent study program. She soon became interested in filmmaking and eventually earned a scholarship to the Graduate Film School at Columbia University. After graduation, she began working on her first feature-length movie, The Loveless, which she co-wrote and co-directed. Bigelow had a stint at teaching at the California Institute of the Arts in the 1980s before returning to the big screen. She continued to be a box office success with several films and solidified her place in the traditionally male-dominated world of action films. That's Today in Women's History. I'm Renita Young, Bloomberg Radio. All right, Renita, we thank you and appreciate you spending some time with us here on the Fastest Hour in Politics. I'll meet you back here tomorrow on Bloomberg, of course. For Rick and Jeannie, I'm Joe Matthew. 10-4, good buddy.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.